This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to be with you. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Deuteronomy 17 this morning. Uh, You can rest assured I will not be taking my cue from Dr. Miller and reciting the book of Proverbs or Isaiah this morning. It's a little tougher in the Old Testament unless you go with Obadiah or something. So uh, none of that this morning, maybe in a future time. Uh, But I want to spend this morning just looking at uh, a brief passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy 17. It's a passage that's intrigued me for some time, and I've thought, in in fact, in the past that uh, I'd like during uh, one of these opportunities in chapel to address this, and that is essentially looking at leadership principles from uh, the regulations governing how to choose a king. When the people of Israel were to come into the land, God specified how best they were to go about selecting their king, and we find this here in Deuteronomy 17, so we'll be looking at it this morning. Uh, I'm in the midst of reading a fascinating book right now called uh, Lincoln's Melancholy. The subtitle is How Depression Challenged a President and Fueled His Greatness. And it's really a look at Lincoln's life and how uh, he went through periods of despondency and discouragement and and used that really to fuel his own uh, leadership ability. But in the uh, intro to that book, Shank, the author, gives a very fascinating anecdote. And if you'll just permit me the liberty of of reading this, I I found it a very interesting one. Uh, It says this, a year before he died, Leo Tolstoy, you may know him, the famous Russian novelist, told this story to a reporter for the New York World. He said, once while traveling in the Caucasus Mountains, I happened to be the guest of a Caucasian chief of the Circassians who, living far away from civilized life in the mountains, had but a fragmentary and childish comprehension of the world and its history. The fingers of civilization had never reached him nor his tribe, and all life beyond his native valleys was a dark mystery. Tolstoy told them, told them of his work and of the industries, inventions, and schools of the outside world, But only when he turned to the subject of warriors and generals and statesmen did he arouse the interest of his tall, gray-bearded host, the chief. Wait a moment, the chief said. I want all my neighbors and my sons to listen to you. He soon returned, Tolstoy continued, with a score of wild-looking riders. And those sons of the wilderness sat around me on the floor and gazed at me as if hungering for knowledge. I spoke at first of our czars and of their victories, then I spoke of the greatest military leaders. My talk seemed to impress them deeply. The story of Napoleon was so interesting to them that I had to tell them every detail. As, for instance, how his hands looked, how tall he was, who made his guns and pistols and the color of his horse. It was very difficult to satisfy them and to meet their point of view, but I did my best. When Tolstoy finished, the chief lifted his hand. But you have not told us a syllable about the greatest general and greatest ruler of the world, he said gravely. We want to know something about him. He was a hero. He spoke with a voice of thunder. He laughed like the sunrise, and his deeds were as strong as the rock and as sweet as the fragrance of roses. The angels appeared to his mother and predicted that the son whom she would conceive would become the greatest the stars had ever seen. He was so great that he even forgave the crimes of his greatest enemies and shook brotherly hands with those who had plotted against his life. His name was Lincoln, and the country in which he lived is called America, which is so far away that if a youth should journey to reach it, he would be an old man by the time he arrived. Tell us of that man. Tell us, please, shouted one of the others, and we will present you with the best horse of our stock. 
I looked at them, Tolstoy said, and saw their faces all aglow while their eyes were burning, and I told them of Lincoln and his wisdom of his home life and youth. They asked me ten questions to one which I was able to answer. They wanted to know all about his habits, his influence upon the people, his strength. But they were astonished to hear that Lincoln made a very sorry figure on a horse and that he lived such a simple life. After telling them all he knew, Tolstoy said that he thought he could get a photograph of Lincoln. He rode off to the nearest town accompanied by one of the young riders. He found a photograph and gave it to him. It was interesting, Tolstoy said, to witness the gravity of his face and the trembling of his hands when he received my present. He gazed for several minutes silently like one in reverent prayer. His eyes filled with tears. He was deeply touched, and I asked him why he became so sad. The young man answered with a question of his own. Don't you see, he said, judging from his picture that his eyes are full of tears and his lips are sad with a secret sorrow. I think that captures the sense in which a leader such as Lincoln and many leaders have with them a certain sobriety, if not sadness tinged to what it takes to be a leader, right? There's a saying, it's lonely at the top. It's difficult to be a leader. And in many ways, uh, we see that sense in our passage before us, uh, that it's a sober thing to become a leader. And the Israelites were to realize this when they come into the land. They weren't to take it lightly. Now, I'm not going to suggest, of course, that uh, pastors are royalty or that they should uh, treat their flock as if they're reigning over them. We know that the Apostle Peter says not lording it over the flock, right, in First Peter 5. But at the same time, I think we can derive several principles of leadership that will be helpful to us as we think through uh, our own role as ministers of the gospel, as those who would lead God's people in some fashion. And I think uh, uh, for, for many of us, if not all of us, we're already involved in that to some extent or will be uh, as the Lord provides opportunity. So I want to look this morning at this text, as I've mentioned here in Deuteronomy 17. Uh, I'll read through this. I'm reading from the NIV this morning, uh, and then I'll open in prayer, and we'll talk a little bit as we work through the text. It says this, beginning in verse 14, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, given you, given you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, Let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not a brother Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his brothers and turn away from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father, we ask that you would help us as we look into this text this morning, that it would uh, resonate clearly within our own lives to help us to see how best we can uh, lead others and be uh, those whom you've called us to be as we serve you faithfully in the context in which you've placed us. We thank you for this passage, and we ask for you to impress it deeply upon our hearts this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
right, so we're in, in Deuteronomy 17, and uh, Deuteronomy 17 is a, a bit of a unique passage. In fact, this legislation here regarding uh, a future selection of the king is unique in the Pentateuch. It's really one of a kind, and it falls in a chapter which, at first glance, might seem haphazardly put together. In fact, uh, we often find this to be the case, I think, when we look at certain portions of the Pentateuch, such as Leviticus. We often might wonder why certain regulations are put next to each other, right? There seems at times not to be a, a definitive uh, and deliberate uh, plot line, so to speak, on how these uh, portions are put together. And here within chapter 17, uh, we see that we see an assortment of topics like animal sacrifice, for instance, covenant transgression, and the central tribunal of the priests. So we might be tempted to think, what do all these things have in common? Uh, Eugene Merrill, in his commentary, I think is right uh, when he suggests that chapters 16 to 18 deal with the prominent people who will be involved in the theocratic kingdom. That is to say that it deals with uh, the various individuals that will lead the future theocratic kingdom. And so chapter 16, uh, through uh, verse 13 of chapter 17, deals with judges who will have a legal and, and a ruling capacity within this theocratic kingdom. And then uh, beginning from 1714 to the end of chapter 18, uh, Moses deals with the three primary offices in the theocratic kingdom. That is to say the king, the priests, and the prophets. And so he goes through each of these in succession, beginning with the king, then going to the priests, and finally dealing uh, with the prophets. What's interesting is the prophets get the most text. Uh, there's 136 words given in their instruction. Uh, next is the king, and then the priests uh, have uh, about a little more than half of what the prophets have in terms of instruction. But the kings are dealt with first, and so they have primacy of position uh, and, of course, of rank in the theocratic kingdom. And so the regulations here deal with them first, so it's a point of emphasis, and I think we can glean much from that. Now, we might classify this uh, particular legislation or law Many have said it's, it's more permissive than mandatory. In other words, you notice how it begins. It says, when you enter the land and say, let us set a king. So in other words, it's not mandating you must have a king when you come into the land. But this is not to suggest, however, uh, that kingship is entirely out of the question. Uh, sometimes there's a, a view that I've come across from time to time. Uh, that God was opposed to kingship from the very beginning, that it was really seen as something which was uh, plan B or a second-rate option in terms of uh, the people of God. And a lot of this idea comes from a corollary passage that is significant, and I want to just turn there because I think it will help to frame our discussion. That's in 1 Samuel 8. In 1 Samuel 8, you'll remember uh, Samuel being the last, really, of the judges. He's a transitional figure from the period of the judges to the monarchy, uh, and so when he is old and advanced in years, you have this transition and the people demand a king. So if you look at 1 Samuel chapter, seven, chapter 8, it says this, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. 
So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all the people are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And he goes on uh, from there to, to interact with the people and tell them what the king will do. Uh, and you may remember this. He says he'll take your sons and your daughters. He'll press them into various forms of forced labor. Uh, then in verse 19 it says, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Uh, and so based upon this text, in fact, these are the only two passages uh, that have this specific phrase, uh, a king like the other nations, which we find here in chapter 17 of Deuteronomy. Some have suggested that, uh, again, kingship was not the ideal. But I think we have other indications that uh, it's not necessarily uh, to be com- entirely dismissed out of hand. That is to say that uh, kingship from the very beginning seems to have had overtures that it was an intended plan for God's people. We can glean this, for instance, from the beginning of the inception of the Abrahamic covenant. You remember in Genesis 17, verse 6, God promises Abraham that I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Uh, Verse uh, 16 says the same thing about Sarah. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. So already there's a view that kings will come from Abraham and his seed. And second here, uh, the legislation about the king, if you'll notice carefully that it says in verse 15, the king must be the one whom the Lord your God chooses. This seems to suggest that at least it's... uh, I would say slightly favorable or pro-monarchy in the sense that God is going to choose the king. And this is probably analogous to a phrase that you may have uh, come across in your studies, and that is that uh, David, for instance, is called a man after God's own heart. Uh, Often people have a, a more popular understanding of that to mean that David has some characteristic trait that is like God, that that God really likes David just because there's a a mutual character. Uh, But I think probably that phrase more has to do with the fact that David is God's choice as king. That is to say, he's the man whom God has chosen. Uh, MacArthur, for instance, says that it relates to the free divine selection of the heir to the throne. It's about election to kingship. And I think David himself recognizes the legitimacy of his kingship, right? In Psalm 2, Uh, He says several things which would suggest uh, he sees this as legitimized by the Lord himself. He's the Lord's anointed. He's installed on Zion. He's begotten as his son. Uh, And so David doesn't necessarily see his kingship, I don't think, as a plan B or as a negative concept. And then third, I would just add that uh, kingship seems to be God's plan from the beginning of creation. If you really uh, dig into the text of Genesis, uh, I think you can see that this is the case Uh, God himself is king, and then he makes man in his image. And the very first phrase after uh, his designation of man in his image is so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth. So man's nature in the image of God is tied closely, although not exclusively, would say, to his task or function as a ruler. Uh, I've heard Dr. Snowberger speak of uh, his terminology of uh, Reichsgeschichte, meaning Uh, we ought to talk about the history of kingdom even more so than the history of redemption as it's often called in the broader literature. So I think kingship is not necessarily a bad thing. However, what is bad is like anything, a good thing can become bad or uh, 
can become a threat if it is not closely guarded and curated. And so that's the key here. It's, uh, we would say analogously in the church, obviously we need leaders. However, we must be careful that leadership itself does not become abuse, right? That it is closely guarded and kept within the boundaries that God has designated for it. So with that background in mind, I want to work through uh, this text and just see a few principles of leadership. I have six principles. This isn't a, a technical presentation by far. It's more of a just a, a general overview. But I want to get a view of, uh, of what, what I think leadership in, in general should look like. And we can get these principles here from Deuteronomy 17. All right, so what are the six principles? We find first in verse 15 uh, that the leader must be devoted to God, not a crowd pleaser. The leader must be devoted to God, not a crowd pleaser. Uh, He says here that in verse 15a, you must certainly or be sure to appoint over you the king whom the Lord your God shall choose or will choose. Uh, There's a lot of uh, comparison often made that uh, this same terminology is used uh, in the way in which God will choose where to place his name. That is to say, he's going to choose the central sanctuary. And in the same way, he's to choose the man who will reign over the people. So the first requirement is the king is divinely appointed rather than popularly chosen. The king doesn't need to follow uh, opinion polls or really uh gauge necessarily the the temperature of the people he's first and foremost chosen by god his allegiance is first and foremost to the lord himself and i think we see this uh for instance in in other places of scripture and i think uh often of of the correlations between this and uh lemuel in proverbs 31 we talk about proverbs 31 most people immediately think of uh the woman of virtuous character right but if you Uh, What often gets overlooked is the first part of chapter 31, which is uh, Lemuel's mother advising him about how a king should behave himself. Uh, And it's sort of a bookend because you begin Proverbs with the father and mother instructing and you end Proverbs with the king on the throne and the mother, the queen mother is giving instruction. And you remember he says, uh, she says there to Lemuel, the following, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Now, why would a king need to do that? If a king has absolute power, which often in the ancient Near Eastern world they would, why, why the necessity to defend the rights of the poor and needy? I think this uh, connects to the fact that ultimately they're accountable to God. God knows and God has a certain expectation of their behavior. And so first and foremost, they're accountable to give justice uh, because they represent uh, that authority in some fashion. So the leader must be devoted to God, not a crowd pleaser. Uh, He must be uh, that person whom God has chosen. And we see secondly, uh, at the end of verse 15 and into verse 16, that the leader must be humble, not arrogant. The leader must be humble, not arrogant. Uh, you'll notice this interesting uh, requirement. You must choose, or, or, or the Lord will choose this king, and he must be from among your own brothers, from your brethren. Uh, you cannot allow a foreign man who is not one of your brethren to reign over you. Uh, this is an interesting stipulation and is uh, quite unique. 
uh, among legislation for kings, uh, this idea of being uh, one of your brothers. Uh, there doesn't seem to be a clear example of when a foreigner did reign over Israel, but Peter Craigie lists two possibilities during the time of the judges, possibly Shamgar in Judges 3 or Abimelech in Judges 9. If you remember the story particularly of Abimelech being the descendant of Gideon, he has an aborted attempt to establish kingship, and it really just ends in disaster, bloodshed, uh, and, and mutiny and all these sorts of things. Uh, and it really shows the dangers in inherent when outsiders come to power. Ultimately, though, it seems that this provision is, again, a safeguard to prevent foreign influence drawing away the heart of the king toward other gods. That is, a, a, it's a fence against spiritual apostasy. We can think of the notable example of Jezebel, Uh, in her marriage to Ahab and the influence she brought to bear on the kingdom uh, when she led astray the people into Baal worship. And so this was a concern here. Uh, They were to preserve right worship by having one of the brothers reign over them. But I think it also points to the fact that uh, the king is to come from, from the people. He's not to lord it over those whom he rules. He's rather to be Uh, the first among equals, if you will. That is, he's to be one of the brothers who is uh, raised to a position of leadership, but he's not to use that as uh, a a bludgeon to uh, submit, to cause everyone to be subjugated to him. Rather, he's to lead graciously as one of the brothers. All right, so he's not to be arrogant. The third principle Uh, is that the leader must be modest, not hungry for power and prestige. Uh, The leader must be modest, not hungry for power and prestige. We see this in the second part of verse 16. Uh, It gives the provision here, he must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt in order to multiply horses. All right, why the uh, prohibition here against horses? Horses represented wealth, of course, in the ancient world, but they also had a primary function related to warfare, right? If the ancient version of the tank was the horse and chariot. And those who used these in their militaries uh, did so in a way that was really adverse to how the Lord expected his people to fight. When the Lord uh, gave instructions for his own people how to fight, primarily in the Exodus event, we know that God was to lead them into battle and to fight on their behalf. In other words, they were not to uh, rely too much on their own physical strength and ingenuity. This is part of what got them into trouble in the book of Judges because they looked at the Canaanites and they thought, there's no way we can beat them. They have iron chariots, right? They are invincible. And so they, they lacked faith in God's ability to defeat the enemies. So the king here is not to do anything which would Uh, vaunt himself in such a way out of power and prestige that would, again, cause his heart to be drawn away. And I think there are important principles here. Uh, When we get into positions of leadership, there's also often a desire to increase our prestige, right? I think all of us fall prey to this temptation. Uh, We want to be noticed. Uh, We want to be uh, lauded in some way. We may not say that overtly, but we We want our work to catch the attention of others. We want worldly success in some fashion. We want uh, to lead a church that is flourishing and all these sorts of things. And so uh, we're susceptible to this temptation. uh, And and what uh, Moses is warning against are these 
foreign entailments which begin to incrementally lead astray someone's heart. That is, out of a desire for uh, our own character, prestige, and power, uh, we are willing to be seduced away from uh, the truth. And the idea here is that Egypt represented a special danger. Egypt was renowned for the production of horses. They were well known for this. Uh, But the danger here is that the king would entail his people in something that would lead them back to Egypt. Now, there may be a hint here that there would be a slave trade. When it says uh, you must not send the people back, it's not clear whether that entails a uh, delegation or perhaps a slave trade for horses. But in either case, the point is God said you must never go that way again. In other words, you've been freed from there. Don't get embroiled once again in bondage there where you came from. It reminds me of the language when Abraham is sending Eliezer, his steward, to find a wife for Isaac, and he makes the steward swear uh, that he will not uh, take a wife from the Canaanites and also that he will not take Isaac back there. And Abraham says this twice, only you must not take my son back there. In other words, to to do that would be disastrous to once again take Isaac to that foreign context in, in a spiritually hostile environment and away from the land that God has promised. Isaiah 2 and Micah 5 connect horses to wealth as elements which lead to pride, a loss of awareness to trust in the Lord, and uh, ultimately unfaithfulness and apostasy. All right, so uh, the leader must be modest, self-deferential, not hungry for power and prestige. We see next in verse 17 uh, that the leader must be faithful, not lustful. The leader must be faithful, not lustful. He's not to take or multiply wives for himself, or his heart will be led astray. His heart will turn away. This word multiply is repeated several times here, so he's not to, uh, again, multiply wives for himself. Now, in the ancient context, uh, this might have a different conceptual background than we might be tempted to think. Uh, It it seems to be a prohibition not simply out of uh, a desire not to have a heart filled with lust so much as the political alliances that would ensue from marriage. So marriages in the ancient world were often a means for political alliances and, again, a way to gain strength. But I think uh, we can see both ideas here. That is to say, uh, particularly amassing wives is a temptation to lead one's heart astray toward Uh, false worship and toward apostasy. That is to say, to be filled with evil and illicit desires. I go back again to Lemuel's mother's instruction in Proverbs 31 where she says, uh, do not give your strength to women. It is not for a king to give his strength to women. In other words, a a life that's filled with uh, lustful desires uh, is one that is not uh, lived according to God's desire for that leader. So uh, the principle here is be faithful to what God has given you, not enticed by those who would turn you away and seduce you. All right, number five, the the second part of verse 17, he must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Uh, Again, accumulating wealth here would be a natural thing for a king to do. Uh, We could say that all kings in the ancient world tried to amass horses, harems, and hordes of wealth. Uh, But here the king is not to do that. He's not to accumulate wealth. Why? Because there's something about the accumulation of wealth that gives power. And power, as we know, tends to corrupt and leads to greater and greater corruption. I think we see this even in our society today. Uh, Those who lead our country, uh, there was a day where 
their humble origins was really a point of emphasis in terms of uh, getting them votes and popularity. Um, you know, we may not all know uh, all the presidential history to the same extent, but I can remember the, some of the slogans of 19th century presidents that really uh, uh, emphasize this. For instance, uh, William Henry Harrison, you know, he was uh, a backwoods man. Andrew Jackson, Lincoln was the rail splitter. All these images were such that would emphasize they came from humble origins. They're like us. Nowadays, I think we see the opposite. That is very wealthy, powerful people. And so there's a danger here when wealth becomes a consuming desire, it leads our heart astray. And this is a susceptible temptation, I think, again, to those who would be in ministry. There's a, a susceptibility to temptation toward greed, lust, power, all of these same tendencies that we see here. And we need to be guarding against them. Lastly, uh, number six, the leader must be word-dominated not careless. The, the leader must be word-dominated, not careless. Again, this is a unique instruction in verses 18 to 20, really unparalleled, and that is when he comes to the throne, he's to copy for himself the law, the Torah of Moses. You notice it says in verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom. Uh, this probably suggests the notion of accession to the throne and presupposes the idea of co-regencies. If you know much about uh, the history of ancient Israel and the ancient Near East, it was very common for kings to have a period of co-regency before they became the king themselves. One example uh, we can think of would be Uzziah when he is uh, struck with leprosy, has Jotham his son become his co-regent, but this probably uh, happened quite frequently. And in fact, I've uh, been reading a book on the chronology of the Old Testament, and uh, you really have to almost uh, positively affirm that this happened in many instances for the chronology to work out. And that is to say that uh, the, the son who was to be king would become king alongside with the father. And when the father passed away, the son would then become king. And part of that coronation involved this protocol. That is to say, he was to write for himself a copy of the law. Now, this would require him, of course, to be literate. He'd have to be able to read. But it also would give him no excuse for disobedience. If he wrote out from his own hand an approved copy of Torah, he was responsible for everything that was written therein. It was common in the ancient Near East uh, for a king coming to the throne to be given uh, covenant documents stipulating the behaviors expected of him in his reign. And here the Torah seems to function in that capacity. It's not clear exactly what it means uh, when it says a copy of this law must be written. There's a lot of discussion about what that means. Uh, some narrow it so far as to say he only has to copy Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20. Uh, I tend to take a, a broader view myself uh, that it's at least looking at Deuteronomy as a whole because this phrase, this law, occurs 15 times in Deuteronomy and seems exclusively to connote the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. That is the series of expositions Moses is giving. I think even more, uh, knowing Deuteronomy's function as a capstone to the Torah uh, suggests that I think the entire body of the Mosaic law would be in view that the king is to know. Uh, if we can kind of garner some insight based on Solomon and the wisdom writings, he has extensive familiarity with Genesis uh, based on allusions he makes there. So I would assume uh, the king was to copy out the entirety of the Torah. 
but what's really interesting about this is not only is he to write it out, but you'll notice what he's to do. It's to be with him. In other words, it's not put on a shelf to gather dust for the remainder of his reign. It's to be a document that is ever before him. It's something which is to govern his life and lead him as he goes out and comes in. It's sort of an application of chapter 6 in real life with the king. And he's to uh, read aloud from it. Uh, This verse 19, the Hebrew word there is kara, which has this idea of uh, calling out something. Uh, So it, it seems to suggest that he's to read it out loud or to recite it to say it verbally. In other words, not just to read it silently, which is more of a modern way of reading. Uh, there's some debate about this, but many think that in the ancient world it was more common to, uh, to read aloud uh, for sure. Uh, and so he's to do this, and I think it even suggests uh, some measure of memorization of the word. For him to be able to recite it would suggest he knows it so well he can say it from memory. And I think Uh, Those of you who have worked on scripture memorization, it's really hard to memorize something if you're not saying it out loud, right? Reading it out loud. So this is what he was to do, and he was to practice this throughout his reign. Uh, So he's accountable to God for how he conducts himself, and his, his reign is to be governed by the word. He's not lord over the Torah. He's the understudy and subject to the Torah. He's governed by the word. He's dominated by the word. And the, the word is to uh, carefully lead him in all that he does. All right, so these are six principles for leadership. Does the story end here? Well, I want to suggest uh, one ending to the story that we can take as a cautionary tale. If you turn lastly to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10 made allusion to Solomon earlier. What's fascinating is when you look at the uh, the narrator's view of Solomon's reign here at the end of 1 Kings 10 and into chapter 11, it's presented in almost a neutral fashion. It's almost as if he's just giving us the facts of Solomon's reign. He did this, he did this, he did this. But if you really think about this in the context of Deuteronomy 17, notice how Solomon contravenes every single stipulation that's been given, perhaps with the exception of the last one, uh, but we don't have enough data to formulate that view. Beginning in verse, uh, let's see, let's begin in verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world saw audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Q. The royal merchants purchased them from Q. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. And you'll notice that the result of that was 
Uh, he worships their gods. Verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. So what can we glean from this this morning? That I, I think the leadership principles are important, but even if, if the wisest of the kings was susceptible to these temptations, we are no better off. So let me encourage you to assess your own heart. I think all of us would have to admit uh, we easily fall prey to these sorts of temptations. And we need to constantly, as Paul said, be mindful of ourselves and of those who hear us. And if we are to assess our own hearts, what would we find? Are we devoted to God or to the crowd? Do we lord it over the flock or are we humble and small in our own eyes? Are we hungry for supremacy and notice of others, for celebrity and attention, or are we self-deflecting and modest? Are we filled with lust and illicit desires, or are we faithful to the Lord and to the wife he has given us? Are we driven by financial gain or willing to go without things for the sake of the gospel and for the ministry? And Are we controlled by the word of God? Are we careless toward the scriptures? Is it just, is it just a tool that we use in ministry, or is it the word of God that governs our lives. I would encourage you to think about these truths, uh, fairly simple, straightforward, nothing technical or too sophisticated about it, but I think it's a good reminder to us uh, that we need to be people in leadership who are careful and who are governed by the word and are faithful to God and leading well uh, so that the flock God entrusts to us can flourish under our care under ultimately the oversight of the chief shepherd to whom we are accountable. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for a brief time this morning to look into this text. And I know there's much we could say, and uh, there are even uh, cultural uh, discontinuities. Uh, but I think that we uh, can see several principles here that would help us, Lord, to be faithful as leaders. So I pray that that would be the case. And I ask that you just take this word and seal it upon our hearts. Uh, that you might continue to mold and shape us after the pattern of Christ, that we would be faithful servants, that we would hear at the conclusion of our service, well done. And I pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that we do today and in the coming days. May we honor you and reverence you and live in uh, holy and reverent fear of you to be pleasing to you in all that you've called us to do. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.